Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, as part of a new trade deal, the U.S. is pushing China for a stable yuan. Um, this actually request comes at odds with years of global pressure on China from the group of 20 economies in particular to move towards a more free-floating currency. To get a sense of what's going on, uh, let's bring in Dr. Wynn Thin. Uh, Dr. Thin is the global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman in New York. He joins us on the phone. So, Dr. Thin, what is behind the U.S. move to, you know, in, in theory, push uh, the Chinese to stabilize the yuan? Yeah, it's, it, I have to be honest, it really caught, it kind of caught me off guard because, as you know, the U.S. has been pressuring China about its exchange rate policy for years and years and years. It's, it's getting written up all the time in the semi-annual Treasury uh, FX reports. Now, it's not been designated a currency manipulator, but you know, it's, it meets some of the criteria. So then to turn around and almost in the same breath ask them to basically manipulate the currencies, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, this hit the headlines yesterday. I don't think it's something that really China can really commit to. I mean, they, they are, you know, opening up um, uh, their economy and markets to more market forces. And to be quite honest, I don't think they want to lo lose that degree of freedom. I mean, that is, if you go into some sort of peg or quasi-peg, uh, you know, you, you lose some uh, degrees of freedom in terms of, of running monetary policy. And, and, that's just, and given how many balls that the Chinese policymakers are juggling right now in terms of structure reforms, uh, 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 secular slowdown, et cetera, I don't think that's something they want to give up. So, you know, it's one of those things that there's traveling that's being out there. Um, you know, I, I personally, even if they agree to it, that's not, I don't think it's something that they can be held to. Yeah, I, I got I to gotta admit, uh, I was struck by the same idea that basically the U.S. has been yelling at China all of these years for manipulation, not only of currency, but also of, of its companies, and to then turn around and say, please manipulate them because otherwise uh, your currency is going to weaken too much is, is head-scratching at best. I'm wondering, do you buy that the U.N. would weaken considerably versus the dollar if it were allowed to float freely? Well, I think part of that question has to be uh, framed within sort of the view of well, what, what, do I, what do you or what do I think of EM? Because the reason I say that is that the correlation between the yuan exchange rate and, for instance, the MSCI EM FX index is up around 75%, which is a, hugely, a huge jump from what, it's used, what it used to be. And what that reflects to me, you know, of course, it's still a black box, but to me, you know, the, the PBOC fixes, still fixes the uh, yuan exchange rate and allows it to fluctuate in a certain band. But to me, it tells me that this black box fixing mechanism is, has, for better or for worse, introduced uh, you know, a, a more market forces into the, into the exchange rate. That is, it's moving along with the rest of EM. So I happen to be a little bit more uh, negative on EM than many, I think, out, out there. Uh, I think there's still some issues out, quite a few issues out there that's, that's, that's weighing on EM. So I'm looking at through a lens of, uh, sort of, I see EM weakness in uh, this year, in 2019. So my view would be that the yuan would probably weaken as well, along with the rest of EM. So, Dr. Thin, so given that you know, the U.S. and Chinese negotiators are back at it, uh, trying to hammer out a trade deal, what is your sense of the, what will come out of those negotiations, and how does that impact your view of the dollar? Sure. You know, you probably know, and you guys have been carrying out a lot of the, the, you know, the news in quite timely fashion, that we're you know, playing sort of headline ping pong right now, but for the most part, we're seeing some constructive uh, comments from both sides. This is quite different from back in December when, if you recall, 
U.S. put it, their spin on, and the Chinese didn't even bother putting out you know, any response. So they show the lines of communication are better. The their meetings are much more frequent. Remember, we just ended a round in Beijing last week. They're here in D.C. this week. So it's definitely picking up all that. You have to because we have the March 1st deadline. I think most participants in the market believe there will be some sort of delay. Despite all this positive talk about some progress, it seems that the, 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 the sticking point is a structural reform issue in China. And I don't think that's something that can be resolved in, in two weeks. So, you know, we've heard comments that we could get a 60-day extension. And that's probably sort of the base case. And I think the market would actually think that is positive, that we're just, even though it's pretty much like, you know, kicking the can down the road. My, you know, from a longer-term view, I do think they'll come up with some sort of face-saving uh, compromise that both sides can say they claim victory now. I don't think it's going to be some huge shift in what in in um, trading relations. I, I sort of think it'll be more along the lines of what we saw with NAFTA 2.0, mm. which is sort of, sort of you know sort of some tweaking here and there. But you know, it's not going to be the greatest trade deal since sliced bread, which is I think <laughs> the way it's been spun. Sliced bread was was a fantastic trade deal, uh, Doctor Thin. I, I do want to get your sense going back to what you said about emerging markets and the correlation between the UN and broader emerging markets. In the past two days, the UN has weakened versus the dollar by the, uh, or actually uh, has strengthened versus the dollar, uh, the most since December in about two months. And I'm just wondering. I mean, do you think that that is idiosyncratic, specific to the rumors that we have heard that the U.S. is looking for this as part of the trade negotiations, a fixed UN? and is sort of artificial propping it up? Or do you believe that this is sort of more optimism generally around emerging markets, whether or not it will last? Yeah, I know. I think it's the, it's the latter. If you look at the uh, more MSCI, I refer to the MSCI EMFX index. Uh, that's been up uh, the last couple of days. Um, it's a multi-week uh, high. So, you know, in, in general, it's also very high quality. You know, good news on sort of the U.S. trade um, front is tends to be reflected in, in, in a stronger EM currencies. Uh, also a stronger Aussie dollar, and that, you know, there's a feedback loop between sort of wider EM and, and, and the yuan, I think. But, you know, it's all sort of, you know, in, in some ways maybe the two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, again, um, you know, as you know, the market sentiment, the pendulum swings back and forth to extremes. Uh, I tend to think we're sort of maybe on the extremely positive side right now. I don't think, I don't think a, a, a significant deal is, is likely by the March 1st deadline. It's possible, but I, I don't think it's my base case. Um, and so we may see that pendulum swing back a little bit. So, Doctor uh, Thin, know, I think, let's sorry, go ahead. No, good. I'm sorry. Good. No, I think the one thing you have to sort of frame this whole debate about EM with is that the fact that the, the global growth outlook is, you know, has worsened significantly in the last several weeks. You know, the trade out of Germany, UK, Japan, and you know, to some extent, the US. You know, with the retail sales shocker. Uh, you know, to me, that's the, really the most important thing. I think. Going forward for EM is, is how, what's the global growth outlook, and you know at this point there's a big big question mark, um, and we need more clarity on that. So real quickly, Doctor Thin, uh, other side of the world, halfway around the world, um, Brexit continues to be a very messy situation. Yet the sterling kind of hangs in there around 130. Uh, what's your short-term view on, on sterling? Sure, you know again it's been just like just headlines up and down, uh, headline volatility. Um, I think to me, I think a, a can kick there would be welcome as well. There's been talk about. Uh, extending the uh, the Article uh, 50 deadline past the end of March. Uh, there have been headlines in the last year or so that they, they could somehow uh, amend the Irish backstop. I still think that's that's something the U.K. wants, but the, the EU has made it clear that's a non-starter, that that is non-negotiable. So, again, I think the pendulum sentiment has probably gone a little bit too far in, in terms of getting a, a, a deal. 
Yeah. Um, it may swing back a little bit more towards the realism that you know we're, we're probably going to have to kick the can down the road. Uh, yeah. It, it just seems that you know the the differences just seem too too great to to bridge. To bridge. At this point. Dr. Winthin, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Winthin, Global Head of Currency Strategy for Brown Brothers Harriman uh, in New York. Well, despite the winter storm that has descended upon our nation's capital, we still expect to get the minutes from the Federal Reserve meeting, January meeting, uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern today. So to help us break down what we might see in those minutes is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle is the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, LLC. Uh, she was also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve, and she is a Bloomberg opinion economist. Danielle, thanks so much for joining us here. Two o'clock, despite the storm, we should get the minutes. What are you expecting to see and what are you looking for? Well, I'm expecting to see an elaboration on the chatter that we know has been going on behind closed doors about that balance sheet. Um, in, in Jay Powell's press, uh, press conference, he said that over the next several meetings, they would determine what the thresholds would be, what the benchmarks are, such that they were to either potentially taper, but that's looking less likely after Messer's comments that said that that quantitative tightening would stop on a dime. They, they wouldn't taper the quantitative tightening. But I think the minutes today are going to reveal more details about what that process is going to be, what economic thresholds will be hit, such that they would also, in addition to stopping rate, the rate hikes, also stop shrinking the balance sheet. So we've talked with a lot of investors and analysts who are still expecting one to two more rate hikes later this year. Do you think that the Federal Reserve is going to hike rates again in this credit cycle? No, I think that that train has left the station at this point. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that in, in a recent speech when he was up on stage with Bernanke and Yellen famously, I don't think that he would have opened the door to quantitative easing, which he reiterated in a subsequent appearance if he had not already taken rate hikes completely off the table. Do you think that today's meeting minutes are going to show this? I certainly do. I do. And, and so that is going to be positive for markets, right? Well, I, I think that markets have already priced in the positivity in today's minutes. So I think that anything shy of the dovishness that's anticipated will be very unwelcome news. So the, the market has gotten fairly, fairly ahead of itself. So, Danielle, we've had the markets experience a tremendous amount of volatility in December, then mm -hmm. kind of coming back, reversing itself in January so far this year to date. A lot of it was due to the Fed and the, and the changing positioning and policy and, and, and commentary and messaging. Do you think the Fed minutes today will shine a light on what happened? Well, I think that they will elaborate on the reasons that the Fed uh, went on pause. It will go into some of the global economic um, uh, challenges that we've seen. Obviously, we've seen Germany and Italy weaken even more uh, since then. China is a, a train wreck. Um, so I think that it will detail some of the reasons globally and even here at home with housing um, being weak in terms of justifying their position. I think that there will be a lot of details. So uh, out today, uh, Goldman's Peter Oppenheimer in a Bloomberg television interview said that the expectations of recession have been overblown. And you can see this by the positive uh, performance of both credit and equities. You disagree with that. Why? Well, I don't think that you can actually take back the lagged effects of the rate height uh, of the rate tightening that has occurred. Uh, the lagged effects on the economy take nine to 24 months 
to settle in. So I don't think that those can necessarily be reversed. On a more fundamental level, uh, we follow at Quill Intelligence very closely the breadth of jobless claims. And as of last week, we saw 53% of states have rising year-over-year jobless claims, challenger gray and Christmas layoff data. We've seen six straight months of year-over-year increases. And we know that the best year of, of M&A on record, mergers and acquisitions on record, which was last year, we know that 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 realizing synergies, so to speak, means that when two companies get married, that there's going to be layoffs that follow. And indeed, that is the fastest growing category of reasons behind layoffs. So we, we, we think that this 53% of states is going to increase. It was just 2% just over a year ago. So we think that that's going to increase and that that alone states that if you've got rising joblessness, you've got a rising probability of a recession. So, Danielle, you're the author of a book whose title I just love. I think it's great. Uh, it's entitled Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Why is the Federal Reserve bad for America, in your opinion? Well, I'm, I'm an old, uh, I guess I'm an old markets veteran who, who took securities pricing way back when markets actually determined prices. And you know, back in 1987, in the aftermath of, of Black Monday, Alan Greenspan started leaking information to fixed income trading desks ahead of Fed moves to inject liquidity into the markets. This is a matter of public record. And as the years went by, every time there was a bigger hiccup, whether it was long-term capital management blowing up or San Diego and, and, and the municipal bankruptcy, whatever it was, every time there was the need for the Fed to step in, they had to step in in a bigger way. And I think intervening in market functionality is inherently non-American. Given the fact that uh, real rates right now are not much above zero, Mm -hmm. do you think that the Fed is out of ammunition to counter the next downturn? I think it's going to be very difficult. I'm not sure how quickly we will recapture the zero bound. But I think Powell's understanding that we will go back to zero is what has opened the door to his discussing quantitative easing. Real quick here, where do you think the next credit crisis is going to be? You know, it's hard to say, but I would have to say that with all the negative yielding corporate debt in Europe and the fact that the ECB was able to uh, to to intervene in that market and to purchase bonds in that market suggests to me that that is the most overvalued credit market in the world. Negative yielding debt, still $8 trillion or more out there of such debt, which defies logic to pay a borrower to borrow money from you. Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you so much for being here. Danielle DiMartino Booth is chief executive of Quill Intelligence LLC, also a former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Earnings recession is upon us. That is what we keep hearing from a lot of analysts across Wall Street. But the question is, does it really matter when it comes to how much stocks can rally? And is it so bad, other than the R word sounding just terrible? Joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Nick Colas, co-founder of Datatrek Research LLC, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Also a fellow University of Chicago grad. I had through that, throw that in. So let's talk about this. Are we looking at an earnings recession here in 2019, and does it matter? 
The short answer on point one is we absolutely are. First quarter earnings should be down about 2, 2.2%. Second quarter expectations are running 1%. They were 2% a month ago. So we'll certainly see analysts cut those numbers to negative quarters. That's an earnings recession. And now we kind of know why the market fell apart in the fourth quarter of last year. It was discounting this. As far as what it means for the future, not very much. I mean, analysts, markets, investors, they're all looking for a settlement to the trade deal to reignite global economic growth and get the second half earnings back on track. And that's why we're rallying this year. So Nick, uh, I was a former sell-side analyst, so I'm, I'm dying to ask you, how do you use sell-side research these days, and what do you think they're getting right and wrong as they think about earnings for next year, for example? Yeah, I was also a sell-side analyst. I spent, I spent a decade at the old first Boston covering the autos in the 1990s. I was there as well. And so, you know, analysts, uh, industry analysts do one thing very well. They analyze the industry and uh, they try to factor all those things into their earnings models. But they are generally late to cut numbers, as we all know. So we should have been seeing number cuts all the way through the middle half, of, middle and back half of last year. We're only getting them now. And that kind of tells you that the market was ahead of the analysts. And, and they usually are. Price typically leaves fundamentals, and this is no exception. So don't use them? So use them for what they're in. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, let's take this to the logical step here. Are they useful? They are useful from two perspectives. First, they have a deep industry knowledge. And if you want to be a fundamental investor, you need that information. And somebody, particularly the analysts that have 10, 20 years of experience covering a sector, they're very useful to understand the sector and the managements and everything else. If you want to understand where the market's going, though, you've got to be thinking about where the analysts will be taking their numbers versus what they're doing with them right now. Well, that sounds like an ad for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, but Nick, so when you think about the market, how how important are some of these geopolitical macro issues? Whether it's you know the trade deal with China, you know a, a Brexit deal, you know that sounds a lot more macro, obviously, than some of the micro uh, levels you were talking about. For the moment, macro really trumps everything else, I think, in the U.S. equity market because the near-term fundamentals both in the U.S. and around the world are kind of sluggish. We're seeing a possible recession in parts of Europe. China's slowing. U.S. retail sales and other data have been kind of sloppy. And so the markets are really hinging on whether or not we get a good, descriptive, detailed trade deal between the U.S. and China that then gives both corporates and investors confidence to invest in the back half of the year. Okay, so Krishna, Krishna Mamani of Oppenheimer Funds was on Bloomberg Television earlier this morning, and he was saying he could see this credit cycle, this rally in markets continuing for five more years. Is that feasible to you? Anything is possible. Oh, come on. <laughs> but. <Do> you, yeah, <laughs> let's not get into relativism you know, we're, we're, philosophical. We're 10 years into a recovery in practical terms if you sort of give a pass to 2011. Right, but they don't die of old age, yada, yada. I mean, is it, fee is it, is it, is it a likely outcome to you? Likely, no. Possible, yes. I would give it 20% odds, 25% odds, you know, with some near-term issues like we're getting this year with this bump in the road with earnings. Um, but, you know... But cycles tend to form for a reason and tend to repeat for a reason. People get too enthusiastic at the top, they take on too much credit, and then you have an economic downturn and the leverage kills them. But we have heard very little enthusiasm. I mean, <laughs> let, let's be very honest. People have been bearish upon bearish, doubling down on bearishness for the past 10 years. Yes, but I mean, it's in a, in a, in a you know, a historically low interest rate environment, you know, how crazy was that in, in hindsight. But how about the volatility, Nick, that we've been dealing with just over the last couple of three months? How does that factor into your analysis? I mean, we've been whipsawed December versus year to date 2019. How does that factor in? 
we have been whipsawed, but I would put it into a larger historical context. So for example, third quarter of the last year, S&P had no 1% days, meaning it didn't move more than 1% in any given day. Same with Q4 of 17. You have to go back to the early 1960s to see entire quarters where there was no volatility of that nature, 1% days. So in the grand scheme of things, we're reverting back to a norm, to a mean. On average, the S&P will have a 1% day every week of the year. That's the average back to 1958. Nick, real quick here, you were saying that you think that things are going to be driven much more by the macro, but we have seen uh, sectors go through downturns, housing, energy. What's the next sector to face a downturn? I'll tell you, the sector we're looking at actually today for our note for clients tonight is healthcare. Um, healthcare has not been a leadership group this year, and it's supposed to be a defensive group, and it's up only up 7% on the large cap side versus 11 for the S&P, and it's lacking, and it's lacking pretty seriously. And, you know, You've seen the three top names, Pfizer, United Health, Johnson & Johnson, none of them are outperforming this year. So healthcare is the one area that kind of befuddles us right now because it should be working better than it is. It's a good growth group. It has good fundamentals. And yet, so far year to date, nothing done. Healthcare, befuddlement. I can, I can relate to that. Uh, Nick Colas, <laughs> uh, co-founder of uh, Data Trek Research LLC. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Nick, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Deutsche Bank was one of the only major banks that would continue to lend to the Trump organization after a series of bankruptcies, which created a sort of conundrum for the German lender when President Trump won the U.S. election. Joining us here to talk a little bit about the deliberations inside of Deutsche Bank at the time and the implications today, Shahir Nasirapur, he is a reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Shaheen, can you lay out just what was happening in 2016 and how Deutsche Bank was discussing it. Sure. So in the aftermath of the 2016 election, Deutsche Bank discovered that it had, you know, what would appear to be a problem on its hands where it had lent a considerable amount of money to the incoming president and his company. And those loans were going to be or start coming due during a hypothetical second term. And they had to confront the risk of, well, what happens if he defaults? The company defaults and we have to go after his assets what what is that what kind of situation does that create for us so internally at Deutsche Bank at the highest level bank executives discussed you know this possible hypothetical risk and as part of their deliberations they discussed extending the repayment term for his loans so they wouldn't mature until after a hypothetical second term now the bank ultimately decided against this they didn't change the terms of his loans and instead they decided they wouldn't do any more business with him so the current status of the business between Deutsche Bank, President Trump, and his companies, as I understand it, it's not the corporate investment bank making the loans, it's the private wealth management. That That's seems right. odd, is that? That's right. So the investment bank had been doing business with the president, or with uh, Mr. Trump and his company, um, you know, a dec more than a decade ago. They had lent actually a considerable amount of money to Mr. Trump um, to construct this tower in Chicago. Now the issue is he defaulted on the loan. Uh, there were dueling lawsuits. Trump's lawsuit against Deutsche accused them of basically having um, having started the global financial crisis back in 2008 or being part of the banks that, that brought that, that brought that into existence. And so the investment bank decided we're not gonna do any more business with this guy. Um, but the private bank and the wealth management decided they wanted keep his business and they started extending him credit. 
So uh, Eric Trump, which is uh, who is one of the sons of President Trump, said this story is complete nonsense. We are the, one of the most underleveraged real estate companies in the country. Speaking, of course, of the Trump administration. How does this factor into the Trump organization today, as well as uh, Deutsche Bank's sort of uh, perilous relationship with the president that already is in existence with respect to these loans that are outstanding? I mean, for the Trump organization. You know, Eric is right in that they don't have a ton of leverage that we can see. Um, the loans that they take out against their properties when weighed against the value of the properties, in a lot of cases, it's pretty small. You know, they'll have a building valued at like, let's say X, and the loan will be for like a 10th of X, um, which is, you know, not typical when it comes to commercial real estate developers. Um, and they own a lot of their properties free and clear. Now the issue is they have a tremendous, tremendous amount of debt owed to Deutsche as well as Ladder Capital. And Deutsche, it, that relationship with Deutsche is one thing that Democrats in Congress really want to spend the next two years going over with a fine-tooth comb because they've spent the last two years in the minority. They haven't been able to dig into this relationship, and they think there's something there, and that's what they're going to do. What, what do they think is there? There is this, you know, no one will say this explicitly, but if you read between the lines, they these are the two separate threads threads that they're chasing. On one hand, they think of Deutsche Bank as a bank that has gotten to problems when it comes to money laundering controls. It's so that's on that's one thing. The second thing is Deutsche Bank has done a lot of business in Russia. The third thing is Deutsche Bank has done a lot of business with President Trump. Now, are those three things connected in some way? That's kind of the overarching question that they want to answer. Okay, so that's why we're going to be getting a lot of news about Deutsche Bank and President Trump from here on out, right? Because the House is scrutinizing this and probably dribbling it out uh, to get a sense of some kind of uh, illicit relationship. But as far as what we know now, there is no evidence to that effect, correct? There's no evidence whatsoever. Okay, and and, and to... Not public, at least. Not public evidence. And Eric Trump's point, uh, it is not an over-leveraged company at this point that's facing bankruptcy or anything like that. No, I mean, past, when yeah. you look at Trump organization loans that have been securitized into CMBS, they're making their payments on time. There's no delinquency of any kind. And the amounts that they borrowed are it's very low relative to the value of those buildings. Well, if Deutsche Bank is not doing new business with the Trump organization, who is? That is a great question. <laughs> we don't have that. That's the next story. We don't, we don't story. know the answer. That's the next story. Okay. Because I've, the real estate business is a business that obviously needs big chunks of capital, but I'm guessing there's also revolving credits that they need to maintain properties and do upgrades and things like that. And that typically, you know, means external financing somewhere. That's right. And a lot of these loans, I mean, some of their loans are interest only with balloon payments at maturity. And the their the company's past practice has been to refi those loans when it's nearing maturity. So for a lot of these loans from Ladder and from Deutsche, they come due in a hypothetical second term. Question is, what happens? Do they pay off those balances or do they seek financing from other lenders? And what kind of risks does that entail, both right. for the lenders, for the company, for the White House? Yep. Excellent. Sh Shaheen, thanks very much. Shaheen Nasirapur, a Bloomberg reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.